Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim right. Cubitt. Today we're going to start a new series called, what? No. Just so y'all know, my wife every now and then will look at me kind of side-eyed. She's just looking at me, but it makes me wonder if I'm doing something like I shouldn't have. Huh? No, I'm good. Like I give myself a zipper check, you know. <laughs> good. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start a series titled Reframed. Jesus Changes Everything. And I want to talk to you about how Jesus has, in fact, changed everything. He has reframed everything, which means, which is to mean express something differently. He has expressed our relationship with God, which is what we're going to talk about, in a different way than what it used to be expressed. We, God deals with us in a different way than he used to deal with us because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He changed everything. He changed how we worship. He changed how we approach Him. We used to worship through, it, <clears throat> through our sacrificial giving and all of those things. And now the Bible says that we have an intermediary, which is Jesus Christ, that we have access and confidence to go into the throne room of God, having the veil been removed between us and His glory. Jesus changed everything. He changed our hope in that we have an expectation of hope. He changed our perspective in that because of that hope, we know that we know that that hope is sure and set. And that we are just, as we're learning in 1 Peter on Wednesdays, we are transient people. We are resident aliens. We are here for a short time. And then forever in the presence of God. None of that would be possible were it not for Jesus Christ. Jesus reframed everything. Jesus changed everything. And I want to talk to you over the next three or four weeks, four or five weeks, about the different ways that Jesus changed everything. Today I want to talk to you about specifically how Jesus moved us from a position of wrath to relationship. which is the title of this lesson today. Good job. From wrath to relationship. What you're going to hear today is you're going to walk out here and you're going to go, oh, that was a gospel message. Why didn't he just say he was going to give me a gospel message? Because I intend to draw two pictures today. The first picture is the horribleness of who we were. The, the, just the disastrous, eternally condemned mess that our life was prior to Jesus. And the second picture, what Jesus did to change that. Because Jesus changes everything. And he's moved us from wrath to relationship. I want to tell you a story about when I was in the Army. I was in the Army, for those of you that don't know, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division for four and a half years. I can barely remember for a bunch of different reasons. And when I, when I went to basic training, I went to basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia, July 4th, which was my report day, 1990. It was super hot and muggy, you can imagine, middle of the summer in Georgia. But I met a guy there the very first day I was there named Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson, I hated that guy. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. He was, he was one of those guys that doesn't anything that he did to me. It wasn't anything he said to me. But he's just one of those guys when you walk in a room, you're all, I don't like that guy. Y'all know somebody like that? I hope it's not me. But he was, he was everything I wasn't. He was from Minnesota, so he had that Viking-esque 
heritage and background, big barrel chested, looked like he's carved out of stone, perfect hair, square jaw, cleft chin, six foot four. He's just the kind of guy that every other guy wants to punch in the mouth but scared to. Right? And in walks Jim Cubitt. Six foot four. We were the same height. But I had the musculature, unlike this guy, like a Viking, I had the musculature of a bullfrog's legs. <laughs> or something less than that. Six foot four, man, you could almost see through me. I was so small. But I had the same kind of attitude that this guy had because ain't nobody telling a chihuahua he's not a German shepherd, right? And so for just because of our personalities, because he was a Yankee that thought he was all that, and I was an ignorant redneck who knew he wasn't, I, I hated that guy. We were in constant, I'm not going to say fighting, but we were constantly bickering at each other, back and forth with one another, until it happened. And the fight did happen. Like, we just kind of talked around it for a while, and I can't remember exactly what happened. We were in the barracks room one day, and it was old-school barracks. I don't know if they still have them like that, where it's literally lines of bunk beds with lockers at the foot of them, much like you see on television. And he said something, or I said something. I don't know what it was, but it was just the spark that we needed. And this six-foot-four, 165-pounds went at this dude like I, like I was on like a jackhammer to no avail. But, I mean, I gave him everything I had. And he gave me everything he had. And I remember we knocked over a steel bunk bed. We went under a bunk bed. We just rolled over a couple foot lockers. We, we fought. question is, why were we fighting? We were fighting because our personalities were so close, but we were so different. And I thought, this dude's got a hold of me. He's going to kill me. Or I'm going to have to figure out a way to kill him. And this is just where we're at. Until some random dude in our platoon, I don't know who he was, still don't remember, stepped in between us, separated us, talked us off the ledge, and the fight stopped. And I don't know why, but from that moment on, he and I became the best of friends. This is just ladies, just so you know. If guys fight together, they become friends. That's how we bond together. I know it seems weird to you women, but that's how guys are. Women be all fighting, and then, they're, then they make up they're not fighting, but then they still fight not fighting. <laughs> guys don't do that. Guys are all, all right, that's a good punch, right on. But none of that would have happened had my, this guy in our platoon not jumped in to help. Why do I tell you that? Because you and God were fighting because of who you are. And because of who He is. Because He is magnificent, He is beautiful, He is perfect, and He is holy. And you are none of those things. We fought because of who we were. But somebody jumped in the middle of us and pulled us apart, separated us, and then reconciled us together as friends. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. He jumped in the middle of a fight. The Bible says that we are at enmity with God. We were at conflict with God. We were at war with God. We had every reason to be condemned and go into hell because of the way that we had treated God. But Jesus interjected himself in the middle of a fight and said, Stop. Did the work necessary to ensure that not only were we separated from our enmity, but then reconciled back together. That's a beautiful picture. It's only beautiful, though, if you understand who you were. And so, like I said, I want to draw you two pictures today. In the first half of this picture, you're going to go, oh, man, this is the worst sermon ever. I am not feeling uplifted at all because I need you to know, if you know what the good is, why the good is so good. And the good is so good because the bad in you is so bad were it not for Christ Jesus. Does everybody hear what I'm saying? Jesus changed us from deserving wrath to having relationship. 
But why did we deserve wrath? We deserve wrath. I'm going to read 5, 6 through 11 for you out of Romans. It says, For while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. 5 8 is one of the most beautiful texts in your scripture. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved. By his life. And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive, we have now received reconciliation. Man, that's all that's beautiful. I got there's some texts that you go, man, you know what? You probably don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that. But this is the only text we should ever be talking about. Because everything written in the Scripture is to point us towards the work that Jesus Christ did on our behalf, and these verses do it perfectly. We were not good. This first text, seven, 6 and 7, I'll tell you, because of the way it's written, and I'm Polish, I've been hitting the head a lot. I, these two verses I struggled with for like five or six years. Like I couldn't figure out why would, why would somebody die for a righteous man. Or not die for a righteous man, but somebody might die for a good man. And so, I, like, I, I mean, I prayed, God, give me revelation on this. I didn't want to go to a commentary. I, I just wanted a revelation about this. So my wife and I, two years ago, were talking in my, in my, at the house. And I said, I said, these are the verses that mess me up. And you know what she did? She looked at me and just gave me this simple answer that I've been searching four years for, several years for. She said, you're not good. And because you're not good, Jesus would die for you. If you were righteous, there would be no reason for Jesus to die for you. But the fact of the matter is, none of us are good except God. Mark 10, 18 says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. And because we're not good, because we're not perfect, we don't deserve to be in the presence of the perfect. And so someone may die for a good man because there are no good men except God and except those who have made, been made good through God, Christ Jesus. So we deserve wrath. None of us can come to righteousness without him. I'm going to read a couple of verses to you here. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. So none of us are good. None of us deserve anything but God's wrath. And because none of us are good, none of us can come to him unless he calls us. Why? Because we are sinners both by birth and by action. Now, Pastor Jim, it's a pretty basic message. I wouldn't have to keep giving basic messages if we started paying attention to basic messages and applying them to our life. There's a truth in the fact that Sun Tzu wrote in the, the Art of War, advanced techniques are the basics master. If you can just grab a hold of the simple truths of Scripture, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, the rest of it you'd have figured out. But it's the simple gospel that we struggle with because we can't understand how a God that is infinite and wonderful and beautiful and magnificent and all-powerful, all places at all times, that draws near to you when you draw near to Him, that is a strong tower, that is all of those things, how can that God love me? I don't know. Except that He is love and He does. 
Amen? And so no, no, none of us deserve it because none of us are good when one man's sin, sin entered into the human genome. When one man's sin, who was Adam, our nature became sinful. Our very fabric of our being became sinful. It's the reason why no one's good. Because you were sinful both by birth and by action. You guys ever teach a baby to cry? You ever teach a baby to manipulate you so that you'd feed it? You ever have to teach a baby to slap someone they weren't supposed to? No, they do all that stuff on their own. You have to teach them not to. Not to lie, not to manipulate, not to be violent. You have to teach them those things. You know why? Because it's in their spiritual DNA to be that. But your spiritual DNA can be changed, both by birth and by action. You were sinful. So not only did sin enter the world through one man, according to Romans 5.12, therefore just as though one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and sin became part of the human condition, we have to recognize that we aren't worthy of the calling of God on our life. But God gave it to us anyway. We deserve hell, eternal separation, and damnation. I get told pretty regular, don't forget the grace. Right, Pastor Rick? And I'm not going to. But we're not getting there yet. Grace is so sweet. Because sin is so bitter. Let me read something to you. Romans 10, or correction, Romans 3, 10 through 18. If it's part of our human gen genome, it's, it's who we are, it's the human condition, it's sin is in the fabric of our person. Starting in verse 10, chapter 3 of Romans, it starts to read like this. As it is written, none, there is none righteous, not even one. Righteous just means in right standing. None of us are in right standing with God. There is none who understands. All of us have had our understanding darkened. There is none who seeks after God. We have become so darkened, we've not only... Don't seek, we push away the only thing that can save us. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Y'all starting to feel the weight of who we were before Christ Jesus and who you are if you don't know Christ Jesus? There is no good in you. And then he continues, he says, there's not even one. Let me explain to you and, and I'm, I'm adding this piece, but these all, let me explain to you how jacked up you really are. Their throat is an open grave. You guys ever been around someone, every time they open their mouth, death falls out of it? Doesn't matter what positive thing you say to them, death falls out of their mouth every single time they open it. This is what it's talking about. Your mouth is an open grave. Not only is your mouth an open grave, their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asps, which is a viper, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is the human condition. He's explaining the human condition. Destruction and misery are in their paths or in their plans. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is who we were before. None of us righteous. 
None of us understanding. None of us seeking. All of us useless. None of us good. Throats that are open graves. Tongues that are constantly lying. Seeking out violence. Destroying those that are around us. I'm not going to ask for hands because I'd hate to do it because I'd have to raise my own. I'm not looking to deal with that today. But all of us have done all of these things. Oh, I've never done any of that. Really? I'm not talking about chasing somebody down and actually seeking after their blood. But when was the last time you talked badly about someone hoping for their destruction? Because it's the condition of the heart that determines the sin more so than the action of the hand. All of us have done these things. All of us are deserving of hell. None of us are good, for only God is good. Because we are sinful, we deserve wrath. That's good. That's good, Pastor Jim. There is no good, no understanding, no desire to know. Pastor Davis gave us a text last week from Judges 21-25 said for there was no for they did what was good in their own eyes for there was no king in Israel this is who we are this is who we were but can i tell you there is a king and it doesn't matter what your eyes set yourself to you're obligated to the lordship of the king because the king offers perfect justice And as Christians, we're all, praise the Lord, perfect justice. But as Christians, we forget sometimes we don't do the things Christians do, and perfect justice is still waiting for us too. Perfect justice, unbiased, non-discriminatory justice. Romans 2, 11 through 12 says, For there is no partiality with God. For those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So either you're doing it right in Christ Jesus, or you're without Christ Jesus. That's how you're going to be judged. Where do you stand? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? This is where you will stand. You will be judged perfectly on your true confession of Romans 10.9 which is to declare Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. If you haven't made that declaration, it doesn't matter how good you were, how nice you talked, it doesn't matter about all all the acts that you've done, none of that is going to matter. It is a declaration, a confession, a life change proven through action. It's not the action that saves you, it's the proving through action that your confession was real is what's going to cause you to be not separated from God. Or to cause you to be separated from God, because God judges impartially. You're all, I'm a good guy, I did such and such and such and such, it doesn't matter, that such and such and such such is going to send you straight to hell. Depart from me, for I never knew you. But God, I did all this stuff, I don't care, depart from me, I never knew you. But don't you understand that I did such and such? I believe the guys that said that in the book of Matthew truly believed that they were good. Otherwise, why would you argue in front of a holy God? But the fact of the matter is, all their good, all our good, all your good, isn't going to make any difference in the world if you haven't made a declaration according to Romans 10, 9. And then lived out that declaration. I can't call Jesus Lord if Jesus isn't Lord. Well, sometimes I fall. There's grace. But we shouldn't sin for the sake of grace. Grace should cause us to not sin. Every time my wife forgives me for doing something stupid, I don't go and do it. Well, she forgave me that time. I'm going to go do something stupider. Sometimes I do on accident. I don't think stupider is a word. but Stupiderist. I've done some stupiderist things before. You know what it does? It causes me to recognize the love that she has for me and to not abuse that love and not do that again. That's why we don't abuse grace. Because every time God forgives us, we should recognize He loves us. 
And in that understanding of his love for us as it grows, our desire to submit to him should grow. But I know there's a bunch of people because I've done it. Hey, if I do this, God will forgive me. Till one day, he doesn't. Till one day, you don't have time between the time you did that and the time you die to ask him to. None of us deserve heaven. There is a perfect God with perfect justice who doesn't discriminate. He promises a perfect justice that promises perfect wrath to those who are unrighteous. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Not some ungodliness, not just a little ungodliness, all ungodliness. Whatever ungodliness you're involved in, you deserve the wrath of God and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Why? Why does the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness? Because we suppress the truth, which means to say, because we knew better. Do you know you knew that there was a God before you got saved? In your heart, God, God created you to know that there was a God even before you got saved. It's the reason you've been trying to make a God out of something your whole life. Because you knew there was a God, you just didn't know what, what to put in that hole in your chest. Romans chapter 1 says this, to prove this point. He says, verse 18 is the text I just read you, because we knew better. Because, in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what? Through what has been made. By what can be physically seen, not by the revelation, spiritual revelation you got. You ought to be able to go outside, sit on the grass, watch the grass miraculously grow, and realize that there's something bigger than you out there that's causing that grass to grow. There's something that keeps the sun from colliding into the earth, the moon into the earth, the solar system out of whack, your heartbeat moving, something put skin over your nerves so that you wouldn't be in pain all the time, something put a tear duct in your eyes so your eyes didn't dry completely out. There's a million reasons why God in the natural showed himself to us before he revealed himself to us. being understood through what was made so that they are without excuse. And because of that, we are without excuse because we should know better. But then it goes on and it, it gives an indictment of us. A charge against us. It says, even though you knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We became futile in our, expect in our speculations. We tried to reason away God. Our speculations about God became futile, useless. We call that unsubstantiated science today well that can't be true the the mountains were formed 100 billion years ago and the bible clearly states that the mountains were formed in six days everything in the in the universe was formed within six days somewhere just over six thousand years ago if you believe in the literal translation of creation but that can't be possible but it is possible and so we try to argue away the existence of God. Let me ask you a question. If you walked through the woods and you saw a little glass ball about this big next to the path you were walking on, it was beautiful, 
perfect. No bubbles in it. It was just a glass ball. Hollow on the inside. And it was laying beside the path. Would you think somebody made that or that it just happened by chance? You would assume somebody made that and left it by the path. Right? Well, what about if it was the size of your house? Would you assume somebody made that or it happened by chance? What if it was the size of the earth? Would you assume somebody made that or it happened by chance? You would assume someone made that. And glass only has two or three elements in it. But we can't assume that God made that, that there was a creator that made all of this so magnificently and so perfectly, but we don't have any problem believing that there had to be a creator for this thing that only consists of three or four elements. We've allowed our speculation to get away from us. And we've shown ourselves foolish for doing so. Well, that can't be true. There's dinosaurs in the earth. You can explain all that away with the flood. Scientifically, legitimately prove that away. The Bible's true. But we've determined to foolishly speculate. And we wonder why God's mad at us. He shows himself. We wonder why God's mad at us. We sin against him. We wonder why God's mad at us. It goes on and on and on, this whole thing. I'm not, I'm not going to go into as much detail about them, but it says, because of that, God, therefore, because of that, God gave them over in their lust, their hearts of impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Boy, don't we do that? Don't we serve the blessing over the blesser all the time? Man, I come to church, I'm looking for a job. I, my whole world's falling apart. My wife's left me. All these things are happening. You get your job back. You might get a new car. Your wife decides to come back to you. And then you leave church again. You're worshiping the blessing over the blesser. And we wonder why God's mad at us. And because of this, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with women, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So he just let them go. If you want to go, go. Because God's not going to... Somebody asked me, why didn't God just force us to love him? Who wants to be forced to love somebody? So if the further you step away, the further he's going to let you step away. And as your, your sinfulness deteriorates and degrades and becomes worse and worse and worse, your lusts become worse and worse and worse and worse. I believe I'm personally convicted that this is a natural order of things. The way that God has ordered our punishment. You want to know why there's so much homosexuality in the world today? Because we're more impure today in our thinking and in our society than we've ever been. And he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, and he just lists all this stuff. Greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is the condition of the world we live in. Our morals in society, our spirituality in society are degrading. To the degree, not only are we looking for new ways to sin, but we're celebrating the sin as it deteriorates. 
Watch television. Things are happening right now that 20 years ago you'd have never imagined. Cities on fire. Cops getting murdered in the street. Babies. Full-term babies. Right before they're birthed into the air are being murdered and put on tables to be thrown in the trash. And we wonder why God is mad at us. And they celebrate it the whole time. And we wonder why God's mad at us. Philippians 3.18 and 19 says this, They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, because death is coming to the sinner. Because a wage is going to be paid, whether we pay it or Christ paid it, death is coming. Whose end is destruction, who God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. I've got that in capital letters in my notes. They glory in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Go to a pride event. They glory in what they should be ashamed of. We brag about our sin these days as though it's something we should be excited about. And we wonder why God is mad at us. We wonder why we deserve wrath. Why God deserves to pour out his vengeance on us are you guys hearing what i'm saying and i know it's i hope my hope is to be freaking you out right now because hell's hot eternal and eternally separated from an almighty god and in our previous condition or the condition you may even still be in that is a true reality, or was a true reality for your future. We deserve the wrath of God. That's the first picture I want to paint. We deserve the wage of death, according to Scripture. But God had a different plan. Jesus gave us relationship. 8, 9, and 10 of our text today. But God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus saved us from the wrath of that we deserved all the wickedness all the lawlessness all the rebellion in all of that god loved us enough to send us jesus and in jesus his magnificent holy grace this is the picture i want you to concentrate on but this picture can't be seen without recognizing the other picture first. That, that there's a God that loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus Christ himself died a death so that we could live a life. The eternal God stepped out of heaven. I think we get past that. He put his perfect feet on our imperfect world, in our imperfect skin, so that we could be in a, a perfect eternity. And He did it because He loves us. He did it because He loves you. I say this regularly enough, but probably not enough. It's easy to, to, to acknowledge that as a congregation. Yeah, Pastor Jim said he, God loves us. But I want you to look at it personally. God loves you. Period. I imagine and I think of the I, I, I meditate as much as I know to as much as I know to on what Jesus Christ must have gone through. And the whipping and the beating and the being chained and all the stuff that he did voluntarily to give us relationship with him. 
And I recognize that we serve a God that isn't bound by time or space. And if he's a God that isn't bound by time and isn't bound by space, knows everything and is in all places at all times, I have to believe that when he was chained to that post and they were ripping the skin off of his back, he closed his eyes and saw your face. Because he knows everything at all times. Do you imagine such a thing? And he didn't have to. He could have stayed in heaven. And there would have been no indictment against God. Because it wasn't God's failure, it was ours. But Jesus came to reconcile us. Through Jesus, we were justified. He assumed our guilt. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our cup of wrath by becoming sin and being separated from God. That's the reason why on the cross he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know what forsaken means? Why have you deserted me? The God of the universe has to look at the Father and say, Where did you go? Why am I here by myself? It's the reason because he took on our sin. He became sin. And because God can't be in the presence of sin, God turned from him. And for the first time, which I think is the ultimate sacrifice for Jesus to have made on our behalf, to have been separated for the first time in all of eternity from the intimacy of Father God. Why did he do it? Because he loved you. Because he wanted to remove you from wrath and bring you into relationship. And that's exactly what he did. And in assuming our sin, Jesus appeased the wrath of God. Romans 3, 24 through 25. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. These are a lot of big, big spiritual words. I'll get to them in a second. In his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Jesus justified us, which means remove the charges from us, but remove them so completely as it's as though we were never charged in the first place. Not only did he justify us, he redeemed us. He, he bought us back from the enemy and displayed himself as our propitiation. You know what that means? As a propitiation. That means an appeasement. He did it by appeasing the wrath of God through the blood that he shed you I told you it's a pretty basic gospel message but it's it's the greatest message we have that Jesus reframed everything he moved us from wrath to relationship it says that he reconciled us this is the thing that blows my mind. And I hadn't thought about this until the other day. God could have forgiven us without reconciling us. This is what I mean. How many of you guys have somebody in your past that you guys fought, you disagreed, maybe an ex, you guys went through something horrible, and you forgave them. But you still don't allow them back into your circle or spend time with them. Jesus forgave us or did the work so that we could be forgiven. But God never had to let us back in his circle. He did both. He forgave us of our sin and then made us part of his family. Made us part of his family. There's a 
there's a verse, John 15, 15, I believe, that Jesus tells the disciples, you're not slaves, you're my friends. We're friends of God. I, when I was a new Christian, that used to irritate me. I thought that was the most irreverent thing. There was a song, Friend of God. I thought that was so irreverent for us to call ourselves friends of God. But if you read the verse, you don't call yourself friends of God. God called you friends of God. God said that we now have the right as a, because we've been adopted as sons to call him Abba Father. To be in intimacy. To have confidence in him. Expect him to supply our need and watch after us and protect us. Because that's what a father does. Doesn't matter who you were unless you're still that person. Grace has saved us from God's wrath and moved us into relationship. Verse 11 reads like this. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What's our responsibility to it? Because there's always a responsibility to it. To exult in. To celebrate. We have to be a celebration people. My goodness, why wouldn't we be? Y'all remember this first picture over here, this first painting? How horrible we were. How horrible our sin nature is. The, incl the inclination to sinfulness and unrighteousness and ungodliness that we had. But God, for no other reason than he wanted to, brought us into intimacy with himself. Why wouldn't we celebrate that when we recognize that we've been reconciled? Our job is to celebrate God. Celebrate the work that he did. And you don't do that sitting in here during a worship service. You honor him by showing up at church. I believe you help the fellowship when you show up at church. But you don't celebrate God primarily in here. You celebrate God out there with the way you live, the way you talk, what you spend your money on, the thing you allow your gates to hear and see. If people look at you and can't see Jesus in you, then you're not celebrating the second picture like you should be. We were this, but God, through Christ Jesus, called us friends. That's comforting to those of us that have given our life to the Lord. But what about us who haven't? I've been praying since I knew what I was preaching on. God, prick the hearts of the people that need you. Give them an understanding that they have a need of you. I don't know where you're at in your life, but I would ask that if you don't know Christ Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you've never made a declaration of him if you're still framed in that old picture to submit and allow yourself to be framed into this new one if that's you i'm going to i'm going to pray and i want you to pray with us i'm going to pray anyway regardless if that's nobody in the room if you've made a decision for the Lord or rededicated your life to the Lord today, I want you to come see me or Pastor Rick after service because we want to talk to you. We want to spend some time with you. You know, getting people to talk to us after service is like, what, except for like one or two people that you can't ever get rid of. Yeah. <laughs> Was that out loud? Is <laughs> the hardest thing on earth to do. But we want to love you. Nobody bursts a child and then leaves it on the sidewalk. We want to walk with you and talk with you and answer the questions that you have. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. God, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you, you overlooked all the reasons 
while we deserve wrath and gave us your son Jesus instead. That you caused us to be in relationship with you. If there's any person in this room, God, who doesn't know you or has allowed themselves, as the writer of Hebrews said, to drift away. God, I pray this prayer over them, asking that they pray along with me. Father God, I, I am a sinner. And I have sinned. Forgive me of my sin. I know I deserve your anger and your proper judgment. But God, I ask that you forgive me because of the work that Christ Jesus did. And because of that work, I declare him Lord, that I will follow him, that I will live my life according to your word all the days of my life. I ask God that you not only forgive me of my sin, that you give me your son Jesus, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you give me the strength to walk this new thing out every day. And God, when I fail, if I fail, God, give me the strength to get back up and recognize that you still love me anyway. I turn away from my sin. I turn towards your son, Jesus. I declare that you are a magnificent father. We praise you for who you are. God, we thank you for the time that we've had today. God, I thank you for the people in this room. Give us the ability to live according to the standards of your word. Provoke us by your spirit to do what you've called us to do. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, feet to move towards those that are hurting so that we can declare the gospel to them, so that we can show tangibly the love you have for them through us. God, that we might ultimately be the conduit that grows your kingdom. That's our prayer. We thank you for who you are, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.